Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. I'm Chris. I'm Kevin. I'm Jason. I'm Jess. And today, we are talking about how we're all going to die from climate change. The end of the world is nigh. And uh, there's pretty much nothing we can do about it. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, that's pretty much right. Yeah, we don't have the will to organize. We don't have the uh, the means to do so. We've got all the ruling parties in all of the countries of the, in the world that could do something about it are the best that they could come up with is the Paris Climate Accord, which sucks and it's not going to do anything. Right. And um, and they cannot even stick to the fucking shit from the Paris Agreement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's, an, it's a non. Uh, it, it, the Paris Agreement or Paris Accord is a. Uh, a non-binding treaty that uh which means that uh the member nations the signatories uh to it will not abide by it that's how non-binding treaties have historically acted in the world it's just people saying yeah this sounds good we should, we should probably do this this thing that we wrote down and signed our names onto uh so when trump removed the us from the the treaty it it was uh, uh, it was as performative as liberal stunts are um, uh, in right. the other direction. Also, even if every single member nation uh, of the of the uh, Paris Accord uh, abided by its terms to the letter, uh, we would still all end in a uh, a cooked on a cooked planet. Yeah, it's basically too late already. Even if every country in the world implemented the Green New Deal, which is the best that our side is able to come up with. That still wouldn't be enough. So Jess has prepared a little uh, presentation thing for us of sorts. Okay. Um, this, this will be a, a first for us on this podcast, actually being prepared for the subject matter <laughs> that we're going to talk about. <laughs> um, so a lot of this information is from the UNEP, and this is actually a lot of this is kind of based... They, they write a lot of their reports based around the Paris Climate Accord. So there's basically this whole thing is about how nobody's complying with it. But um, the goal is to limit the global temperature rise to 1.5 Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And even at that, there's still going to be global impacts. But every little bit of additional warming beyond that will result in increasingly devastating impacts. And temperatures have already increased 1.1 Celsius. So we're already on our way. Um, only one quarter of the G20 countries that were in the Paris Agreement have committed to low carbon measures. None of them have carried it out yet. Pretty much no countries have accomplished net zero emissions yet. Um, even now, like after COVID-19, recovery money has been, a bunch of it's been allocated to fossil fuel development rather than backing clean energy industry. Um, cool. Yeah, as of November, the G20 governments have committed more than $233 billion to fossil fuels and $150 billion for clean fuels. So really got our priorities in order here. Um, nice. Good work. The, the uh, economic slowdown from the pandemic, it made like a 7% drop in carbon dioxide emissions this year, but it has pretty much no impact on anything um, because we're already so far behind and under current policies we're heading for a world that is 3.2 celsius series warmer um so again we're we're fucked there um so every day that we don't do anything we get further and further from that goal and we're more and more fucked so unless scientists are just like flat out 
flat out wrong about all this, then it's just kind of indisputable that we're going to destroy the world. So, and it's not even just the energy sector, like oil and gas that needs to reform. We have to change land transport, building and infrastructure sectors, land use, environmental protection, food production, consumption, like absolutely every aspect of our lives and of the world needs to become low carbon. And that's, I think, where this gets really overwhelming. Um, Like, even if we were able to switch over entirely to renewable energy in, you know, like our homes and stuff like that right now, it it wouldn't even matter because it it has to be everything. So especially one thing that worries me a lot is the consumer behavior in shipping and aviation sectors. Not only are we overproducing basically everything, clothing, food, like shitty furniture, hundreds of things we don't even need. We're shipping it worldwide. And then, of course, like Amazon comes into it. And the fact that you can order a fucking hat for your cat on Amazon at 8 p.m. on Friday night and get it delivered to your face Saturday at 11 a.m. is fucked up. <laughs> it like, should not it's be so stupid. It should not be allowed. Like we're burning fuel for that. Like they overnighted that on a fucking plane to you. And now people expect that. And I don't know if we can ever like undo that idea in people's minds that we should be able to have every little dumb thing that we need for the lowest price possible as fast as possible. Like, I don't know if we can reform in patience and a false idea of what we need. Um, and then Amazon will just continue to supply this impatience as long as there's a demand for it. So, and the oil and gas industries are still doing absolutely everything they can to avoid a net zero carbon situation um grasping to implement technology that will allow them to keep producing oil but sort of like mitigate their co2 at the same time and it it, nothing is affecting them so far because they're just blocking everything and that's their new strategies rather than like denying climate change because you really can't get away with that anymore they've moved to lobbying politicians influencing public opinion on like the supposed effects of climate action like loss of jobs and economic growth and shit like that so Mm -hmm. um and basically just as individuals there's really not much that we can do even though we are part of the problem but we're we're kind of trapped into this like we can't individually make developers and landlords build more energy efficient buildings we we can't personally make the car industry make more cars that are battery powered and are affordable like we're the only thing we can really do is recycle and like go vegan and buy steel straws and it has like no fucking effect on anything so and of course it's like the rich that are a large part of the problem the combined emissions of the richest one percent of the globe account for more damage than the poorest 50 percent and then the poorest and most undeveloped nations who don't contribute that much to this problem will bear the largest brunt of the impacts of it so we have the technology to recover from this like especially wind energy and solar energy is cheaper than ever but we're just not doing it and it's already too late and it already it just gets worse every day so it- interesting Sorry, just wanted to interject that the U.S. military is a bigger polluter than 140 of the other countries in the world put together. Oh, yeah. I was going to say that, too. And I forgot that, like, we can't make them stop playing fucking war games and burning massive amounts of fuel every goddamn day. Yeah, like, just try to suggest reducing the size of the military in the United States. No one no one even wants to 
think about doing that. Not even the most liberal and progressive of politicians wants to try to touch the fucking military. Yeah, that's a very good point. That was really depressing. Yeah, it is really yeah. depressing. I, I, this is like my, my pet project, sort of like this is <laughs> literally the hill that I will die on. And it just bums me out every fucking day, like every day. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think, um, in my in my mind the what's the the depressing thing about it is is not the inability uh of humankind to conceivably rise to the challenge of the moment because it's like you said Jess we we literally have the technology uh yeah. to build out mass um electric public transportation and uh energy efficient uh, uh, buildings and um, allocate um, agricultural production in such a way that it's not subsidizing or encouraging uh, the the more polluting industries. It's like so on down the fo- down the list. We could we can do these things. We have the technology to produce uh, energy for people on, on a mass scale in on the standards of the first world, uh, or at least some of the first world. Uh, using nothing but renewable energy sources. We have the technology to do it right now, today. But the problem is that it would require uh, a collective action by on the level of uh, the, the globe, uh, of humanity all together engaging in a mass shift uh, away from productive activities, economic activities, where they currently are located into the places where they're, they would uh, make uh, human activity sustainable. And that means that the anarchy of the market and prioritization of maintenance of profits can't remain in place. And so that means that addressing climate change means global co- communism. And that's where I get really down about it and really pessimistic is because where I'm sitting right here and right now is a world, uh, the world that I see is one where the hopes or the possibilities for change this radical, I can conceive of them having the seeds of them existing that could bring it into fruition in like generations from now, maybe. But the time scale that we're on in order to be able to address the climate crisis is one in which we effectively need to have it in place and going functionally world, the world over in the next like 10 years or so. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about an, an aspect of this before in the episode. I think we called it socialism without sacrifices. Uh, yeah. So I wrote, I wrote this note. Um, it says, that, Kevin, you said uh, addressing climate change means global communism. But even then, like what vision of communism? Yeah. Because the uh, the sort of the standard vision, the popular one right now that is being promoted and it is most accepted is like, you know, the fully automated luxury communism thesis. I'm putting that in quotes because it's barely a, it's barely a thing, really. It's 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 more than a meme, but it's barely more than a meme. Right. And it's basically amounts to like, look at our capacity to produce abundance and distribute abundantly. And uh, what if we just nationalize Amazon? And it's like, no, actually, what if we abolished Amazon? What if we like, I mean, because that's what it would take, right? Not only would it take the complete overthrow of the capitalist system and the transformation of all property relations to social property relations, it would also mean degrowth, right? It would, it would necessarily mean a conscious commitment on the part of an empowered population 
which you know empowered for the first time to like do whatever it feels it needs to do decision number one or maybe decision number two decision number one would probably be make sure everyone has food decision number two would be to make sure we do far less producing in general than we do at least of lots of what we have come to understand as necessities but are in fact more than luxuries but are actually um excess we we would have to yeah. we'd have to stop we would genuinely have to to give up what it is that we're trying to to maintain even as we also try to uh live with bread and roses i say we like turn back our personal technology that we enjoy dial back down to like 1996 <laughs> in in the first world let the rest of the world catch up to that and let the first world figure out how to clean everything up before we give everybody their own personal like supercomputer in their pockets all over the world because that right there is one of the biggest sources like our iPhones and these computers that we're using now to record this podcast on are some of the biggest sources of pollution mm -hmm. and um, actually like you know exploitation of human beings as well in the the extraction of those like just look at the uh the, the coup that just happened in bolivia which is probably has a lot to do with cobalt being mined there which is necessary for batteries being produced for all sorts of uh personal electronics as well as like tesla batteries and stuff like that um yeah so i mean degrowth is absolutely going to have to be something that we do and i, I think that a socialism that's like manages catastrophe in order to clean it up and save the world that we're going to need some sort of like war communism for climate mm -hmm. change in order to be able to get exactly. through this. And that's necessarily going to mean probably a lessening of the standard of living in the mm -hmm. first world, the first world, the global north, whatever, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah, disaster capitalism is going to have to be answered with disaster communism because yeah. we live in an era of disaster. And I think that this is all we might as well be talking about, like what our favorite color of fucking dragon is right now at this point, because those things are equal. Black. Like, I agree. Yeah, black. Okay, cool. <laughs> Yeah, so like the existence of dragons and the existence of a, a global disaster communism that's going to save the world from climate change are about equally feasible right now. It is entirely feasible, uh, even if I don't think it's super likely. But it is feasible that a oh yeah that a, uh, a you know you could imagine a version of this moment we're in right now, but with the combined efforts of a of a Corbyn UK and a Sanders US and a Mélenchon France and a, and, and et cetera et cetera right you know that was trying to implement some sort of social democracy that would at least have the capacity, even if not the willpower, to implement what it is that we recognize that we need. And then with the right social pressures coming from uh, rising tides in the oceans and uh, hordes, hordes and waves of climate refugees and all of the other attendant sort of social catastrophes that are, that are coming along with the moment we're living in, that we're now in the I mean, we're still in the early stages of, but we're not the beginning of anymore. It's entirely feasible that all of that could eventually produce the willpower to uh, mitigate the worst with a disaster communism. But we don't even have that. One of the things that I, I think uh, is probably the most sobering for me, uh, facts to, to think about for me on this topic, is um, to add, when, whenever I'm, I'm considering the inevitability of uh, ecological collapse due to the climate uh and whenever i'm thinking about oh yeah well we can we can we have the technology to address this we can, we can fix this right now with existing technology we can we could address if we wanted to we could address the climate crisis i always uh, then but then i 
added to that, uh, you have I have to think about the fact that even if there were zero problems with climate and that we could burn fossil fuels infinitely with zero ecological uh, consequences, we are still living in a world uh, that is being absolutely and utterly plundered and ravaged and decimated by human activity in the form of capitalism because the the vast majority of this exists as a um, uh, a function of the last several hundred years uh, arising out of since the industrial revolution the appearance of capitalism in the world to list just just a few just a few of the highlights uh, this planet has seen a halving of a halving of vegetation biomass since the agricultural revolution around 11,000 years ago. Humans have altered almost two thirds of Earth's land surface. About 1,300 documented species ex- extinctions um, have occurred over the last 500 years, with uh, many, many more unrecorded. More broadly, population sizes of animal species have declined by more than two-thirds over the last 50 years, suggesting more extinctions are imminent. About one million plant and animal species globally are threatened with extinction. The combined mass of wild mammals today is less than one-quarter the mass before humans started colonizing the planet. Insects are also disappearing rapidly in many regions, uh, uh, with 85% of the global wetland area lost in 300 years and more than 65% of the oceans compromised uh, to some extent by humans. A halving of live coral cover on reefs in uh, less than 200 years and a decrease in seagrass extent by 10% per decade over the last century. About 40% of kelp forests have declined in abundance and the number of large predatory fishes is fewer than 30% than that of a century ago. None of that is a function of climate change. So if we addressed climate change, all of that would still be uh, the reality of a planet that we're living on. We are... The geological record shows that there have been five mass extinction events in the history of the planet, uh, historic or uh, some caused by things like a, a, a meteor striking the planet and just wiping everything out. Some caused by things like uh, when plants first appear, they cover the entire Earth and then cha- because they emit, uh, 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 they intake some gas and emit other gases. They literally changed the atmosphere and changed the nature of things. And there was a mass species die off before animals appeared. Things like that. We are right now living through in the Anthropocene the sixth great extinction event, and that is not something that like uh, uh, the nuclear holocaust is something that can be avoided if we do it right, or even really, honestly, the uh, climate change. If we were to wake up tomorrow in a, in a wildly, radically different world, uh, climate change could be uh, mitigated to like one degree you know, uh, Celsius change um, if we were to address it tomorrow. The sixth great extinction event is ongoing it's happening currently it has happened it's just like whether or not we bring the planet with us at this point though because we're i was just thinking i guess related again specifically to climate change 
I think honestly, as negative as this is, I think what will probably happen is they will pump a bunch of money into the type of shit that the oil and um, the oil companies are trying to develop like carbon capture and biofuels and uh, like the biofuels with like algae. It just makes me fucking laugh because it's like, okay, so you're going to come up with a solution that just further fucking decimates the planet and all the shit where it's like, oh, every time we chop down a tree for whatever product you're buying, we plant three more. It's like, yeah, but you're still destroying this like amazing ecosystem of a forest every time that you do this. It's just, we are like just decimating the planet. And so it's not even just that we're going extinct. We're like actively trying to destroy this planet on our way down. And I, I think that's what's like, I just can't picture any other future where the ruling class doesn't come out on top here with their like bullshit solutions where they continue to be able to just like make oil while they somehow offset it. Do you guys remember when all of the dorky libertarians were freaking out about peak oil? (laughs) Yeah. Wouldn't that have been amazing if they were right and we were reaching peak oil and then now there's no more oil? That would have been so fucking tight. It's the only time I've ever wished the libertarians were right. Well, is that a problem for libertarianism? I thought like their I thought their whole shtick was that like uh you know, the market will fixes the invisible hand of the market fixes all the problems. So like if there's not enough oil anymore, then it'll get more expensive and people will uh and the market will provide uh, you know, demand will appear for alternative energy sources or whatever. Well, they do think that, but that's in the absence of the cartelization of things like oil production. Yeah. So their their whole yeah. the, the whole peak oil narrative is that like OPEC countries, the corporate partnership with the state, they're driving us to catastrophe because peak oil is coming and they don't care. And so they're not allowing yeah. the market to course correct human civilization. Mm, gotcha. Um or whatever. No, instead, what's going to happen is they're just going to literally destroy the fucking planet, and uh, we'll never have to worry about peak oil. Right. I mean, you know, they'll colonize Mars, and, you know, like, 144,000 people will survive. Yeah, I was just picturing, like, yeah, some kind of fucking dystopia bullshit where the planet's essentially on fire, and there's a bunch of rich people in some, like, air-conditioned pod, and then they just go to fucking Mars. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we... We, we've talked about this before. It's, it's sort of a trope in the in the regrettable century canon that uh, when Elon Musk builds his space Elysium yeah. on Mars, they'll send uh, slave catching ships back to Earth, you know, to find the people who have survived the irradiated hellscape and then bring them up to Mars to like you know mine. And uh, the new the new class struggle will be between those two groups of people. Oh, fuck. <laughs> where where will you stand? I will stand on the barricades with a machine gun. And uh, fire at the slave-catching ships from Elon Musk's colony on Mars. In fact, I think that might have been the very first conversation that we had as a podcast when it was just you and me, Chris. Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think that was... It was either that or it was the, the... It was the first episode we did, I think we talked we said... We talked about that. Um, so this is yeah. a foundational discussion here. Um, and the reason why I think it has to be foundational is because it's not... This is not a part of the main or even 
even secondary sort of left discourse because right the main the primary one the big one the democratic socialist moment we're in is married with or you know in some way has a a relationship with various visions of social democracy or fully automated luxury communism or various other types of like socialisms without sacrifice that just don't acknowledge the 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 sheer impossibility of the world that they want to live in but then even beneath that the kind of the more radical critical left still doesn't really you know it's just more like we can meet all human need and we can still all have these wonderful things but it will require you know the world revolution the nationalization of everything the democratic planning of everything the only degrowth people that you hear from are like eco-fascists and anarcho-primitivists and they're all insane losers so we're really we're really in a bind here being in a very small core of people that you know have this largely analog spiritually fulfilling but otherwise you know spartan communist vision of the future what do we call it mostly analog i think we call it partially automated regular, regular communism. Communism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. but I, I think disaster communism is probably the, the better word for it yeah. i don't think that this is an organizing this isn't a rallying cry it's more like just this is at some point we'll have to come to the recognition that this is what's left as possibility look if you're listening to podcasts to get your rallying cry <laughs> you're fucking up okay yeah that's true you shouldn't be coming to us to get inspiration to go out there and do the work, or is it do <laughs> definitely the not work? on this I podcast anyway? I'm sure there's there's this some podcast, out there that definitely rally people, but this this podcast is the the bucket of water splashing in your face after a night of hard drinking. You know, it's like time to sober up. <laughs> that's that's what we're here for. This is not to make you feel good. It's just to make you carry on. Or it's like on that scene in Band of Brothers where he throws the bucket of water on that guy's face and it turns out that it was his own piss. That's <laughs> yes, that's we, us. That new tagline. We're like a bucket of your own piss in your face. <laughs> yes. I, I wanted to to bring up the the question of geoengineering because okay. that's like the the utopian vision for not just um mitigating or limiting the effects of climate change but actually to like overcome them right that there's a kind of re-terraforming possibility right when we talk about the that we have the technology to to fix all of this part of that is is this concept of geoengineering and i don't know if i understand what our actual technological capacities are but I do think that um, it seems to be kind of fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. It seems to be like, you know, we can make, we can artificially construct new ecosystems and like basically re, like we can save the world and not just salvage it. So I was wondering if anybody had a perspective on that that was better than my own, which is that it just sounds like a fantasy. I don't know. It sounds like deterraforming to me. <laughs> yeah. I I was going to say it's you know like a reverse. I just can't. I can never remember the names of the of the other aliens. Emery and Oglethorpe. Yeah, yeah. We're against deterraforming. Yeah. Anyways, so <laughs> I think so. I mean, there's different scenarios where I can I conjure this this image up in my mind where there's the scenario where everything has been absolutely destroyed and humanity creates, you know, uh, the best of what remains of humanity creates a lifeboat uh, with its own biosystem uh, of some sort and tries to terraform Mars. 
I, I could see that being as being a worthwhile project for those human beings to engage in and having value in itself as an ideal of, but when I, when I picture the beautiful, sublime and terrifying complexity and mis complexity and mystery of the world that currently exists that has evolved itself into being through an incomprehensibly long history of uh, interplay between various different species interacting with their environment on a, on a planet floating in space you know flying through the the universe i th- that thing is so much more beautiful than any sort of carefully constructed machine nature that humanity could put together that it's not that is not something that i want to see happen that is a that could rescue that the remnants of humanity from total being totally wiped from the face of existence uh, and there's value in that but beyond that like this this sounds like a a, a fucking horror show yeah i i agree with you completely on this so i don't mean to repeat what you just said but i was thinking something very similar before and maybe this is like overly i don't know romantic of me but like there are so many little sort of almost flukes that had to line up perfectly for our life on earth to be possible like the exact tilt of the earth the size of our moon like where the moon is like so many things and i feel like if anything is going to make me sound vaguely religious it's that like it feels like we're forcing it so hard to try and live on another planet that we're ob- absolutely not supposed to when so many things somehow lined up so perfectly for us to be on this planet and it's a beautiful planet and it's perfect well it was has water for us we can breathe here we have an atmosphere and we're just like fuck it, it yeah i i just don't think we should even be able even if we have the technology to just manufacture this on another planet well right i mean like or here (laughs) we we don't first of all like we don't deserve another planet yeah (laughs) but but also i think even if we even if we could i wouldn't want to i don't want to live in like you said the machine nature right for machine people with machine hearts that's not what we are that's that's entirely incongruent with our species being. It's like, I don't think that that's a thing you can just adjust to. You know, it's like, uh, I don't know. We've all been to Disneyland, right? Doesn't doesn't mm-hmm. really feel like you're, you know, or I was, maybe it's Disney World, right? But it doesn't really feel like you're in, when you're in the Epcot Center, like you're in these other countries, even if it's like vaguely reminiscent of that. Or when you get on the little adventure boat, it doesn't really feel like you're on an African safari. You know, you're not really in Star Wars. You're not really talking to Mickey Mouse. Like, that's the best we can do is a fantasy version, a fake feeling version of something that roughly approximates uh, a real experience. And when I hear people talk about... Not all the girls... (laughs) I was going to say, not all the girls in France are as hot as the girls that were in France world in (laughs) Tapcots. Do you remember that? I do remember that. I feel like there must be some extremely discriminatory hiring practices at Disney World. That's the only. That's the only solution. The only only possible explanation. I was like eighteen. You were like fifteen yeah. at the time. Anyway, sorry. I don't remember what I was going to say now, but I was. <laughs> that's what I think about when I think about Epcot Center. That's what I think about when I think about France. But what was I? Oh, Jesus, what was I saying? Um, this all has to stay in. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> this is this is important. Oh wait, but I I said that uh, women are attracted. Does that make me sexist? Yes, yes, it does. Yes, it does. Having uh, being straight and having sexuality and wait, being straight male and having sexuality, it's it's problematic, man. Not allowed. Yeah. Fuck. I was just like, uh, I was driving at a point. I just don't remember what it was going to be, but it was. Sorry, you paused and I thought you were done. I just started fucking talking. <laughs> That's what happens, man. It's, uh, it's, hang on, give me, a, it's fucking give bleak. me, give me a second. I'm, I'm going to work my way back to it. It's, uh, what was I saying? I was talking about Disneyland version of reality. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Because I think this is, this is the, this is the problem with the movement that we're a part of today is that we've been so effectively conditioned by the world that we nominally want to oppose, right? By the by, the social order that we, uh, in in theory, like intellectually, want to tear down, and and against which we want to proffer a, an alternative, but in reality, we we merely appear to actually desire something more like a disnified version of that. We want it to 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 look better, but it doesn't. We don't really want it to be fundamentally different. We we we. Uh, anyway, I, I know I've already said this about the the fully automated luxury communism people but that's just the best example and you know when we talk about putting forward an alternative vision for the world we we don't really have an alternative to to offer look i think that we should be able to envision the end of capitalism should (laughs) that's what i think call me crazy (laughs) yeah 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 capitalism sucks man i kind of don't feel like it could come until it reaches just the absolute breaking point or completely like finally falls apart and people are just like in a dust storm or something with no arms left like i don't mm-hmm. fucking know like it ha- it's one side is yeah. being rebuilt from some disaster um i don't think we can yeah topple it really that's a, that's a really good point i think that that's in 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 my like when i think about the future and in my most optimistic moments that's what I think about is a post-capitalism in the the desertified uh, hellscapes of the fried crisp uh, of the of this planet uh, that we're able to finally get past the total commodification of the uh, of every aspect of our lives and um, cooperate as a species. But what I can't imagine. And uh, I suppose this is capitalist realism that I'm I am operating in, and I don't know how to get out of it. Is I can't imagine us being able to overcome capitalism in time to prevent the total eradication of the natural world uh, and uh, having a habitable planet remaining uh, for humanity to continue on. I I don't see how that is possible. Our best our wildest hopes are, like you said, Jason, our, our, our most radical politics that are part of political discourse, uh, even on the, the, the radical left, are things like the Green New Deal, which not, I, I, I would kill to have it, but it's not even close to enough to get us where we need to be. How do you imagine your way out of a world that is so all-consuming that it doesn't allow you to have a future also this is a little off topic but it's the only other thing that i can actually imagine happening first is having another pandemic that just completely actually wipes us out um 
I read this like sci-fi book that I thought was really fucking dumb when I read it. And now I think about it all the time. It was called Station Eleven. And I read it right at the beginning of COVID too. And it was basically just about that uh, virus that came out that was so fucking contagious that it destroyed essentially the entire world, saved maybe like 500 people Good in a week. For <laughs> picking that book up. Yeah. Um, and which is dumb too, because at the time uh, there were so many similarities. But anyways, I could see that happening. And that's just as depressing. And I saw an article that I did not read about it, but there was saw something that uh, linked something about the environment to why we get pandemics or something. I probably should have read that before I mentioned it, but so in a way they're related, I guess. I think that I remember when H1N1 was a huge thing and uh, killed a bunch of people here in the United States and several hundred thousand across the world. But uh, they directly tied that back to the viruses that grow in the the open air pits that they have in slaughterhouses. And I think that, you know, the, the bird flu is something similar. There are several other versions of different types of viruses that are they, they all have their like breeding grounds somewhere in factory farming so okay so that wasn't off topic actually at all <laughs> no no in fact they still don't know exactly where um the coronavirus came from i remember when they were talking about it being in wet markets mm-hmm. in uh in china and uh now of course even the biden administration is jumping on the chinese lab theory yeah which makes me even less inclined to believe it <laughs> <laughs> yeah right yeah <laughs> so uh, it was on the table until then <laughs> yeah this is ramping up the xenophobia so that the Democrats can be as hawkish as Republicans for going mm-hmm. into the midterms, you know? But it's fine because, you know, Biden's in the White House instead of Trump. Yeah. The orange man. He's bad. I mean, has he has tweet, anybody else tweets re- rude has anybody else noticed or does anybody else feel like they've noticed? Because maybe I'm maybe this isn't actually what's happening, but it does appear to me anyways. Like we basically just think we've won like the pandemic's over essentially because now we have a vaccine and people are wearing masks and so it's basically just done and that like by and large people are no longer panicking about it there's suddenly like i know i never see the kind of vague outrage posting directed at no one in particular about how if you aren't out wearing a mask then you're trying to kill my family like all of that seems to have just dissipated oh it's still going on a little bit here in texas because of whatever his name oh is. because Gregory there is a Lipton. there is a, Repul- yeah. a republican administration so there's right, still right, somebody yeah. who's responsible right so like in california where i live and i'm gonna go ahead and guess that in both in new york and in washington that there's just a whole lot less of that because people don't have mm-hmm. a republican boogeyman to at, at whom to shake their fist is that right absolutely right resonant with my experience in washington frankly not even when when trump uh, was out of office. The second Biden won the election, the second the election was, uh, you know, confirmed that he, he won it, it was just like, oh, we, we fixed everything now. It's all good. There was people literally, yep. I don't know if y'all remember on my Instagram story, but people were literally dancing in the streets here when Biden got elected. Like yeah. everywhere, all of yeah, Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know yeah. people were like, just let them be happy that Trump is gone, but I felt nothing. Like, fuck you. Nothing good happened. I yeah. thought it was cute for like one second. I was like, oh, and then I was like, fuck, this is corny. <laughs> right. No, uh, you know, honestly, I, I got to say the the abstracted, like the just the phenomenological moment of masses of people celebrating in street and being among people in that spirit. That is a, a, a truly moving experience. Exactly. It really is. If you abstract it out of the political context that it's all happen- happening in. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I don't know. I was just thinking like something 
approaching a good thing would have been Bernie Sanders winning. And still, that is such a pale shadow of what I would consider a step in the right direction. But Biden, to me, was just a lateral move. So I, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I was like in my house, isolated, broke, unable to find work, ineligible for unemployment watching the world go to hell and being feeling really terrible about my condition and while people are fucking dancing in the street for someone who promised that nothing would fundamentally change. Yeah, I don't know. I was just trying so, so hard to think of something positive to say when I came back. I can't think of anything. (laughs) I don't think you need to. The, the reason why I, I brought up the, uh, the, the question about the disappearance of outrage and shame directed at, at no one in particular is less to do with the contempt for the average uh, Rachel Maddow lib, although that's part of it, right? But to me, it's more about um, trying to think through the broader uh, implications for this disappearance, because it's not the case that it was only a person who was yes, queen and Kamala Harris that's not the only kind of person that was engaging in the in this kind of behavior or whatever it was also like everybody it was also all of our our lefty friends it was also you know various anarchists and communist types and people that we um ostensibly people who know better right and it's to me it's a really it seems to be a good illustration of the way in which the tone for left-wing politics is actually not set by socialists it's actually set by liberals no and mm-hmm. like completely completely 100% set by liberals. Yes, right. And so that is part of what I am. I mean, part of this is I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to drive at this point in this discussion, but because it, it's a complicated thing. But to me, that's like, that seems to be what's at the core of our inability to articulate a vision for the future as well. We talk about the function of utopia as, as helping us even imagine for ourselves the kind of world that we want to build, whether or not we actually arrive at the like, checklist in the schema of of our particular utopian vision right like like a owenite or fourierist type of way right but even just to have a vision that is somewhat more articulate and distinct than just a society where all needs are met a society where you know there is dignity and people have the agency and an ability to to express themselves and be who they want to be a society without gender norms and, and racialized hatreds and all the rest of that. It's all extremely vague and it is perfectly acceptable to uh, a person who would rather see Elizabeth Warren get 12% than to see Bernie Sanders as president. What's lacking is the universalist notion of the cooperative commonwealth that used to be at the forefront of our mind, that that's the shore that we want to arrive on when we set sail. So what we have instead is our own individualized interpretation of that better world that is possible in literally everyone's minds. So if liberalism is setting the tone for how we act in the day to day, and we don't have an alternative vision for the world we want to live in that's so clear and articulate that can be unacceptable to liberalism, then liberalism is also setting the tone for the future. That's what fully automated luxury communism is. That's what this like even less clear social democracy of the 21st century is. It's liberalism, even if it purports not to be. It's liberalism because it's individual. It's liberalism because it is predicated on the assumption that this society is worth extending and defending and perfecting, right, by tweaking here and tweaking there. And that's the reason why the climate catastrophe appears to be not only unavoidable, but even that our measures to deal with it appear to be 
um, to us to be something that, that we'll never be able to achieve because we don't know what we want to achieve. We haven't a utopian vision for the future. That's why it feels like fucking Disneyland because it is. It's fake. And I don't want to fucking live here. I don't, I don't want to live in a world like that. And I don't think any of us really do. I just don't think we ever think about it. We don't talk about it. We don't think about it out loud. We just content ourselves with knowing that when we say a better world is possible, we mean something more serious than when the average liberal says it. But do we really? No. That was what I was earlier trying to get at when I was talking about the Epcot Center. I just didn't know how to get there. (laughs) I don't feel an obligation to say anything positive because there isn't anything positive. You know, in the roundtable, we just had this discussion about like communist hope and despair and the uses and abuses of each. I think it was an important conversation that we had. But I think the imperative to find something positive to say, if there's anything at all, it is merely in that there is a necessity in having a positive vision for what we can do given what's in front of us. We don't have to be positive about our day to day. We don't have to see every single minor uptick in in outrage and even in out and even in rebellion. We don't need to see in that the possibilities of the new world unfolding. But what we do have to have is a very clear idea of what we want to see if that possibility was in fact unfolding. So like I don't know if I was in charge of a socialist education program in like, you know, a broadly popular socialist group in the United States, I would say that like the future socialist society and what we mean by that and what that might look like given not abstractions like factories and distribution networks, but like concretely like the state of factory production in this country, the state of the distribution networks in this country. Like we that's what it would be based on. We need, like, I, I agree with this sentiment that was expressed in the current affairs article called Imagining the End, where they said that we lack a programmatic and strategic approach and that the left has to be both more pragmatic, which is to say more capable of addressing the, the concrete details of this current moment in this country in ways that, like, the policy wonks that dominate liberal discourse can, and also more utopian. Right? We have to be able to connect both of those two things together and to actually be able to articulate a vision of the future. If we have a, a shred of a chance in hell at even coming close to a world worth living in. Do you ever feel like nothing good was ever going to happen to you? <laughs> I'm not sure there is anything else. I'm just really depressed now. Um, <laughs> I was trying to think if, hey. and if and I had anything else to say, I would have just made it worse. And then I was just trying to like picture what the idea in my head of that is. And it's just, like a cloud of, I don't know, me in like a field or something. Like I don't fucking have any idea <laughs> of what communism would look like, but it's definitely some kind of a uh, Luddite bullshit where there's like no technology and I'm like hanging up a, quilt outside or something i don't fucking know but like midsummer but without the human yes, sacrifice yeah maybe. a lot like that did any of y'all ever go back go out go and watch the, the movie metalhead the icelandic movie that i was talking about before no i forgot about that movie there's um i don't want to spoil stuff in it or whatever but uh you should watch it i think i think i looked it up and on like through amazon you have to like get a subscription to some other thing but it's like five bucks and then you have this service, and then you can cancel it and watch something for a week or something, whatever you want on that service for a week. But uh, anyway, um, you know, it centers around this like small rural Icelandic uh, uh, community, um, like farming community that uh, 
there are individuals who own plots of land that they have, you know, that they farm stuff on. There's like an animal uh, factory in the town. And that's that's the basis of the local economy. And uh, there's a point where something needs to be rebuilt and the town just gets together. They decide that they're going to uh, uh, not... <laughs> Uh, banish or punish uh, the the culprit, the person who was responsible for it in any way, uh, and they reincorporate this person into their community, and they get together and physically rebuild this building that needs to be built. Uh, and that that scene where the community is just with physical tools and wood, and uh, in a rural co- farming community in Iceland in nineteen uh, nineties uh, Iceland, that is 100% and without equivocation my vision of a of a of a communist society without prisons whenever i think of the future socialist society i always just think of uh i think i've said this on the show before probably definitely alex's vision at the end of goodbye lenin yeah of the the good the good east germany that he that he created in his mind's eye to make his mom feel better when she was sick (laughs) i mean i think i think that that's kind of close to my own i mean i do have a largely more agrarian fantasy vision in mind but like just dealing with the united states as as it exists today in trying to imagine what it would be like to have our hands on the levers of power in this country today i mean it's almost it's it's its own other episode that i want to do one day where we can have out this debate about what political form would look like you know this the question of like bicameralism whatever but also the question of like what's an effective distribution network how do you answer the question of small businesses versus like you know large corporate chains and um, what does degrowth look like and i have thoughts about them i think it's beyond the scope of the episode to even get into them but I do think a starting point for us as a left is in recognizing the necessity in being able to talk about those things. I think because we don't deal with these things concretely, when we hear someone talk about degrowth, we hear, oh, disabled people are going to die. It's like, well, you know, if fucking Jeff Bezos is in charge of degrowth, then yes, disabled people are going to die. But if we are and we have a thought in our head about what that looks like, Maybe not. Yeah, then just then just Jeff Bezos will die. <laughs> it's the one thing I think I'm certainly clear about in Minecraft. Yeah, I was actually just thinking about how, like, on the on the occasion that I am like in some situation where someone finds out that I'm like a communist and they're just realizing right that second that like maybe that doesn't mean I'm like a Nazi or something. Like they're like <laughs> becoming slightly unbrainwashed or whatever, and I'm like. This is actually what happened when I told my mom I was a communist. And she said that fucking thing that um, it's great in theory, but in practice it doesn't work. And <laughs> yeah. it's boomers love it, to say that. Yeah, but it's actually almost kind of hard to argue with because you're like, no, it would be like. Um, and then I'm like, oh, I don't I don't actually know how it would be organized at all. <laughs> like and then, you know, whatever. So, yeah, I think it would be really helpful to have any fucking idea yeah. about what it would realistically look like. It's like, just imagine if Cuba had the resources of the United States. Yeah. I mean, like, that's how it would fucking work. If, Cu- mm-hmm. if Cuba wasn't being strangled by the biggest, most powerful economy and military in the world 90 minutes away from its shores. Yeah. And they had all of the resources and population and everything that the United States had. You know, that's how we would organize things. Well, 
No, maybe even maybe even on a more even more egalitarian and democratic basis. I mean, forget the forget Can, having the resources of the United States. Just not having the resources of the United States directed at throttling you, throttling your the infinite yes. in the cradle. Imagine Cuba without the embargo, even with its own resources, yeah. just without the embargo. That's a pretty good place to start. And I was going to say, imagine a Cuban political process that wasn't fearing for its life from dissidents that were funded by the United States to disrupt it. Most of the of the political authoritarianism of the 20th century uh, in the you know, actually existing socialist states, you can directly tie to projects to strangle those experiments in their infancy. Because it's a terrifying world to live in where the United States is your enemy. Yeah, and I, I do think that the, this gets at a little bit, it illustrates the the real value in studying history. Because like, I think a major disservice has been done to all of the young people who are grappling at how to oppose capitalism today because of, of a desire to just completely reject the experiences of the 20th century. Obviously, we think that century was regrettable too, but it's not that there's nothing to learn and there's not that there's nothing to resuscitate and, or to take inspiration from in the experience of like the, you know, the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union and so on. Like we've talked about the, we, we've talked in the past about how there's a lot that I, I think we, we, dismiss out of hand and then when we're faced with similar questions at least in our highest aspirations we hope to be faced with the kinds of questions faced by the various people's democracies of eastern europe after the second world war but because we don't know anything about them and i say we in the broad collective we i mean individually some of us know a few things about them right but because we don't know much about them other than that like very likely some people that we are friends with right now would be in jail if we were alive then including ourselves some of us might be in jail right now right so because of that we we don't we don't take the time to study what central planning looks like and where the inefficiencies are and where the efficiencies are uh we don't take the time to consider what a land reform looks like um not that we have a peasant question today but we still have an agrarian question today in the in the form of a question of like how do we produce food sustainably what do we do with the these factory farms and industrialized agriculture that's like literally destroying the planet. One of the biggest causes after fossil fuel burning is the animal agriculture industry. 